Thanks for listening to this podcast produced by Diddy TV, your source for all things Americana and Roots music. Visit DiddyTV.com for more exclusive on-demand content or download the official Diddy TV app from your app store today. Joe Firstman of the Nashville-based band Cordova's is one of the most interesting cats around with all sorts of great stories and info to share. He has important messages to share with the world and does so in a very intuitive way. Cordova's recently put out a record called Destiny Hotel on ATO Records, and you can find your very own copy by visiting cordovasband.com. Please enjoy this conversation between Joe and Diddy TV host Amy Wright. Hey, Joe, how are you today? I'm well. Where are you? Uh, I'm in Nashville. Oh, you're in Nashville, okay. Well, we're, we're going to talk a little bit about the Cordovas and your new album, Destiny Hotel. This is a return for you guys. We had you in our studio for the concert series. And, and of course, I just have to put it out there. We'd love to have you back. Anytime. And you guys were certainly one of the first kind of um, uh, things with production as, as, as slick and as fantastic as y'all have that, that, that had us on y'all's show. So thank you for that, too, Diddy TV. Yeah, well, we loved having you. And I have to say, Ronnie, my husband, you know, he and I kind of started this whole shebang. And uh, there are very few bands, albums, music that he will listen to nonstop. And you're one of those bands. So we listen to your albums and your music. And it's uh, melodic. It's super fun. It's lyrically very interesting. You kind of have it going on on all levels. That's that's about as glowing of an endorsement <laughs> as somebody can get on TV. So um, we'll take it. So I kind of wanted to talk to you a little bit about Todos Santos. I read that that's one of your homes away from home. What is it you love about Todos Santos, and what does that mean to you? Because it sounds like you do a lot of creating musical sort of uh, spiritual journey. Things go on there. What, what's going on with Todos Santos? That's a nice word to start with. Um, above all, because there's just too much to list when you start talking about geography or uh, whale migrations or the baby turtles and all that. Uh, or the surfing, uh, it's just too, too much. The spiritual, there's a spiritual thing that uh, we feel a part of. And um, it's, a, it's a close little community and people are beautiful to each other. Uh, and uh, yeah, that's, a, that's, that's what's going on. It's, there's, there's a lot there for, for if you want it, you know. And some people come through town and immediately go back to Cabo and the resorts. And, that, and there's something about that town that really puts, puts um, you know, matches certain kinds of uh, folks up, you know. You know, I thought it was really interesting. I was reading about it after I read that, that you guys like to hang out there and, and write, that it was a thriving Spanish town. It was a mission there. And then at some point, the underground water stream dried up. and. Right. And it just sort of died. You can't, you know, people can't live without water. You can't have farming and agriculture without water. And then it magically reappeared at some point. That's pretty interesting in and of itself. That's exactly what happened. So in the, so in the 19th, many, many Toto Santonians do not know what you just said. Because here's what happens. They come from America and they don't care. And they don't ask any questions. And there's that. Okay, so here's what happened. They had sugar cane. Okay, and all, all the way up, um, and then it, and then in the uh, in the seventies, um, 
the sugar, the water has just stopped from the mountain. Now the water wasn't just magically coming. It's, it's, it was in the mountain and there's l large pools up there, but the water comes all the way down. And then at times on its journey down the mountain goes underground, right? Okay. And it, and it goes underground substantially enough to, to make it wherever it reappeared on the coastline was going to have some growth and stuff. And that's Todos Santos. It's an oasis and the water just up and pops back out of the ground, but it's coming from the mountain. Um, and yeah, so the sugar cane went away for decades. And then um, that area, which is called the Huerta, uh, which is right in front of my house, um, uh, is, is now p p palms, Washingtonian palms, um, which are what the tourists uh, want to come see, right? Palms. And, that, and then now the water is back. So it's just very palmy. And that causes yearly fires. What causes the fires exactly? People will live in the Huerta and cook. Oh, so mm -hmm. overgrown because it was supposed to be sugar cane, you know, like it got spread oh. from the sugar farmers, kept creating an, a place for the sugar cane to continue to grow and spreading it out. So it's it's very wet right there. Um, one time I tried it when I first moved to town 15 years ago, I tried to take my four by four through there. I just didn't understand the deep, the depth of the water because I'd driven over it days before and it was solid and the water was fl flowing in over the windows. I mean. It is like an Indiana Jones film. I've fought fires, my, me and the volunteers, but fighting fires with covers over our eyes and my eyes itched for two years. Well, that's crazy. Were they, when they originally grew sugarcane there, was it for rum production? Because a lot of that, the Caribbean and Mexico, um, they, they did rum. They produced rum with, from sugarcane. Was that what it was or was it something else? So whoever was shipping would have come in past Cabo and docked in Todos Santos back then. Also, they had the uh, o oysters, which the Spanish completely extinct. It was they, they would have mm. they would allow them to keep growing. We would have always had oysters right right there in our little Todos Santos little bay, the Fisherman's Bay. Um, <clears throat> so uh, no, they 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 ate everything out, but the fishermen were coming and buying it all. And the fishermen also came from the Americas back south to pick up sugar and then go sell it down south and vice versa. And they left baseball bats and gloves. And so instead of um, um, so soccer, football, our town, Toto Sun is a baseball town, which has a baseball, you know, has a $2 million baseball stadium in the middle of town, no public sanitation. But baseball, wow. oh yeah. Hurricane <laughs> came after they built the $2 million baseball stadium and blew it away and they rebuilt it. <laughs> That's a great story. You know, Ronnie and I were in uh, Dominican Republic. A lot of people don't realize they play, play baseball in the Dominican, too. Oh, yeah. And it's, it's really big there. You know, they love the baseball so much. And you see the kids playing, and you know, playing in fields. And, and nothing is very upscale. And uh, right. it's, very, it's very cool. So, so that is funny. That's like a legacy of, of you know, how cultures mix. And, uh, and it's, it's left there. And it's left a, you know, a lasting mark. It's left there. And then, you know, you still have the native um, kind of uh, the early Baja people that were completely wiped out by the Spanish. No one left. Gone. Genocide. Um, it's a crazy. And so you, you um, my friend Fernando is an anthropologist and he knows how to find all the artifacts. And you can anyone's yard will have a, a, a piece of a bowl or something like that or a, a cooking utensil. It's fan, it's a it's a fantastic place. So you're obviously drawn to the spiritual, and I'm assuming that that sort of uh, your own personal journey with uh, philosophy or spiritual leaders ends up in your music. And um, tell me a little bit about 
what draws you to folks like, um, you know, Joseph Campbell or Rainer Maria Rilke, Eckhart Tolle? Yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Sure. Um, what I noticed early on um, was that there was some element of Bob Marley, John Lennon, Bob Dylan, and of course, any other guy who happened to write a good two or, or three or one along the course of his life. Um, and you can trace back even those qualities before there was wor- um, music with w- words in it. But, but, but those guys first, let's think about them. It was not just roses are red and violets are blue. There was some deeper thing to that. You got the sense that these weren't just fools. John Prine was no fool. Um, Robert Johnson was no fool. They had this deepness, this depth, this wisdom, this understanding of the common man, this Willie Nelson type uh, uh, quality, right? And and it made them um, seem like some kind of Christ-like character and Gandhi and could be just as important as it turns out, John Lennon. And so I noticed that these guys were intertwining some mythological things that I kept seeing a pattern of. And and, um, miraculously, when I lived in Hollywood, I was one of those uh, idiots uh, who didn't, you know, hadn't read books, just didn't, I didn't do it. Uh, I didn't know what to do. I didn't didn't know, no one made me, no one looked after me. We didn't have to read books. I skipped all my, I charmed my way through school. I never read the books, right? In Hollywood, you can't, you have to, eventually, if you're going to have the real stuff, you're going to need some basis, right? And so people started leaving books at my house and it was real key. And it was, um, I don't know how Eckhart Tolle came to me, but that's an important guy. But Joseph Campbell is very important. But aside from that, it's, it's Proust and it's the novelist and it's making sure that you understand your Hemingway uh, and at least starting to brush up on some of that and, and uh, dealing with Tropic of Cancer, but, and, you know, Henry Miller and all these famous ones that we should be a little bit aware of. Even if you're a little bit aware of it, there again, you will see those patterns of worldliness and wisdom that I think... Um, is a crucial element of, of, of weaving into one's art, like the way Picasso or Matisse or anyone who's so famous that their um, work comes directly to our mind is why I use those obvious examples. And that's very, that's very interesting because uh, I agree with you that a lot of the songwriters that we really look up to, they have this ability to take a, a concept that really is a complex concept um, that touches your inner self and inner soul, and yet they can boil it down to simple lyrics in many cases that in a very short period of time that music touches you and you really understand what they were trying to convey. Even if what you experience might be different than someone else experiences, it's still, it's still an experience nonetheless in just a very short period of time. Yes, and and it's like you know, what happens in religion or I think what happens in religion, you know. You know, Toll, he's German or was German and he lives in Canada, I think now. One of the things I read about him that I thought was very interesting was that uh, in, um, he grew up in Germany. It wasn't a very good childhood because it was post-World War II and he um, was experiencing a lot of um, turmoil uh, and, and a lot of environmental uh, things, you know, the bombed out buildings and, and it just wasn't very spiritually, spiritually uplifting. And uh-huh. he kind of said that for him, the energy field around the entire country and that life experience was what was bringing him, him down. 
So he had to remove himself from it entirely in right. order to have this spiritual awakening. And I yes. think, you know, a lot of times um, we underestimate as songwriters, for example, that we need to continue to experience different things. You can't be in the same place always, but also if you're in a negative space, you really need to leave that space for sure. Yeah. And, um, you know, Eckhart Tolle would probably also suggest that, you know, while you're in your negative space, you just feel like being lazy and sitting there, sit in there as long as you (laughs) want to, but you will soon come out. And that's the important part. When you come out now, if you stay there, you need to come out and then move over there so you can look back at where you were so that that time wouldn't have been wasted for, for songwriters. Every wasted day is a heartbreak. Therefore, it's subject matter for your next song, right? So stay in your laziness because that might be the best subject that you've got to write about since it's the thing that you know so well. But don't forget to remember how to uh, describe the, the shadows across the wall like John uh, Prine says in Mexican Home and 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 the, and. and re- and uh, that, of course, is an indication of true loneliness and depth, which is what people yeah. have, you know, not, not the false thing. Um, so, yeah, we would need to, to, to have our, our wasted time in that box and then our ability to step back from it. Sure, go to Mexico. That helps. You can look back. When I went to uh, Hollywood in the first place, I got to step back from the South, which at that time in 20, I was mad at. I was mad at being at the bar and talking about the same thing in the N-word to grown-ups, something that you should be taught in second grade. Mm. I got to California, and it, there wasn't any of that. It was just my allies, and we were sh- shaking hands and high-fiving and uh, kissing in the bar. But I got to look back at the South and go, now i got something to talk about. I needed that vantage point to go look back at what had caused me pain or what had caused me joy. And Southerners have the ultimate birthright when it comes to rock and roll because of the way that we talk and the beat that we have as Southerners from Memphis to North Carolina and South and North of there. Um, we are very lucky when, it, when, when we're, if, if we're talking about Diddy, you know, we're talking about rock and roll right now and the blues. Um, Southerners have a little... <laughs> You, you, for Bob Dylan to have grasped this, the nature of what we do is impressive since he's not from the South, you know. People who haven't lived here don't really understand the uh, enormous melting pot of music that goes on here. It's every kind of music from religious music and gospel um, or just plain up straight up church music to blues music to um, soul to uh, um, folk and country and rockabilly. And, it, and it's all... I think that as a person who grew up here like you, uh, I, I didn't really think in terms of what genre I really liked. I just liked music, and I never thought of myself as country versus rock versus whatever. Um, and then you get to adulthood, and you realize that all of that music is in you somewhere. And so if you've grown up with it, that's what's going on in your brain, and you're not really thinking in terms of, I got I to gotta play or write for this specific thing. It's just... Right. It's just in there. If you're trying to do, if you're, if, if, if it's, if you're an artist, that's in the situation where you're trying to emulate something, there's um, probably a, maybe a limitation to the religious quality of it. Right. Um, and we right. should also not forget that since coming from the South, we also have some of the best 
world's best rap music that ever got made. And that's also those beats that are in our mind and the way that Outkast was able to turn words around and, you know, and uh, talking about flicks and dice and these beautiful words that only Southern people could have come up with that are ingrained. Uh, and now, of course, the Americana guys are using this stuff more than ever, as, as always. So, yes, I mean, um, we got away. Let's talk Destiny Hotel. Where did you guys record it? And uh, when, when did you write the music? And then where did you record it? Once we're sure that our, our current thing is going to come out, once you get a street date, you know, and you start knowing that it's going to go, mm-hmm. that, that's when the new record cycle would start. So for Santa Fe Channel, when I, when I knew it, you know, we got the street date, you start seeing, okay, and then they printed some records. Okay, now it's going to come out. You know, don't jinx it, you know, but we're pretty sure. Now you started working on your next record. And that's what we've done now. So the Destiny Hotel, when I, when I got the street day from the label, from our manager, I punched my fist in the air so hard, I threw my shoulder out. Um, <laughs> because I, that was such a celebration. It was as important as a, um, whatever, like the record coming out itself, because that meant we're done with that. This pressure in my life that I've been concentrating on waking me up in the middle of the night and uh, addressing tiny lyrical fixes, right? That I'll know I'll never be satisfied with. No! And so you, you start the day that the other one comes out. So it was two or two and a half years in the making. That, does it push you over the edge to have that deadline? Like you're saying, you're not satisfied with the lyrics, but at some point you have to say, I've made as many edits as I'm going to make and I've got to roll with this. And, I'm, and I, in this case, I'm glad we're not like Axl Rose or something who just gets to like dwell on and like the record, when the cost is just going up and up and up while you're sitting in the studio and like doing blow. No, 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 no. We had to do, we had like five days. We had like $8,000 for the housing and everything. Of course, Nashville band, we did it in LA, as you do. I'll, I'll tell you something. I was in this band when I was younger, and uh, I was just the fiddle player, and, and I did some vocals. So it was this other guy's band. And but I wrote my own music, right? And yeah. he shows up at the studio, and he, he pitches a fit, and... Uh, you know, we were all contributing to the to the amount it cost to cut the cut the record, yeah. and we're all sitting there for like two hours. And the guy looks at me and goes, "Well, do you want us to record your own song?" Because he had walked out of the studio. He like left, and we're all paying for studio time. And he just walked out. And uh, yeah, well, and at that point, we didn't have much money, right? So, you know, every hour was was really critical. We said, "Okay." Anyone else in the band have songs they want to record? We're just going to record those songs because, you know, we're all paying for this. I haven't had too many uh, chances. One time I was on a major label when I was super young and I, I, I was afforded that chance to sit in this, you know, to be in the studio, but I didn't F around. It was a couple solid years of really, really learning uh, and, and being able to sit right there with my chin on the, on the arm of the producer and engineer and be able to, they, I was in a position where they couldn't sweep me away. They were a lot, I had to, they had to stop and answer my questions. I was the artist. And I really got a lot of experience when I was on Atlantic through that with, with and by the way, we went back to that same producer for this record 20 years later. So who produced the, the record? Rick Parker, the great Rick Parker who lives in LA and lives in Beachwood Canyon and it's dreamy up there and um, the, the clouds hang low in the Canyon in the morning and you walk, walk, we rented a house down the street and walked up to the studio and we, we didn't have any time to mess around. Everything was prepared in Mexico. So what did, did Rick bring to the, the table? What was, what was his influence on the album? 
when you're on, when you're on a, a decent label, we're on a great label, but when you're on any kind of label and there's some kind of budget, you, you know, producers, you're going to get some chances. Guys are going to want to work with you, right? It's a little trickier when you're doing it on spec. So we had some choices. Obviously, there's a lot of very great guys here. Um, uh, the brilliant, uh, legendary Memphis engineer, Matt Rossprang, was involved for a, for a few rounds of demos at the beginning. Rick brought what I knew he could bring which was that clean ending. He could take, he can take the way I can um, get with the drummers and move around the beat a little bit and make it sound like it's sloppy, except for it's on, on purpose or something. And Rick can present this, that, this, this throwing together of paint in a way that somebody's going to maybe go buy it off the wall. So does the, does the name Destiny Hotel, does it reflect what's on the album? Or what was the, what was, why did you choose that name? Yeah, I think it does. I think it does. We, we, we were old school. Um, I, I love that you play fiddle, by the way. I can't wait to hear you play and jump up there the next time we come to Memphis. We, we, we yeah, had we'll Dana jam a little bit. We had Dana Beach just the other night sit in with us. She's a fine fiddle player here in Nashville. Destiny Hotel is, we're, we're old school, like album rock type guys, you know, like we're not single guys. We treat all the songs the same. It's a snapshot of your life. These are the 30 that you wrote at that time and then you died. And that, that, that was a part of history. Not like some bro is losing his hair and still trying to sing songs like, that sound like Timberlake, which happens because people want to, they want to see themselves as a finished thing before it's finished, you know. Um, Destiny Hotel is an example of that old school album art. It's just a combination of of, of the songs that we had at that time, um, the label, uh, and then there were and there were there were uh, limitations to how much time we could spend on it. So how well they, all the songs had to be prepared. We treated them all like equal children. Uh, all fifty of them or so played them over uh, the internet for our, for Rick once we were in Mexico. Every week he kept filing through them, getting his help. I wanted to stay out of that, and. Um, and put it put it together that way. So what do you do with all the songs that don't make it on a particular album? Everything that's not on the first three Cordova's records, we need a list. It's going to be about 300 pieces of music. And you want to put them on a big list on the wall in your studio. And um, a band like us, who's got a little bit of extra time on our hands, not on the road right now, can scoot down to any studio in Nashville and document the ideas. You can We can document them well enough out in the barn. But yeah, you got to keep up. Um, new things might come to you. You might be able to, um, you know, change the songs up for the better, whatnot. But you got to. I think you have to record them. You have to draw the picture that's in your mind. You have to put it over there, even if you don't want to sell it or whatever. Show it to anybody. Yeah, you kind of want your babies to permanently be out there, and it's so easy to forget a song, um, even when it's one you wrote. <laughs> oh God! Oh God! I mean, you have no idea because we have too many, to, it's impossible. One of the great things that really actually made the songwriting even more, I was more flooded with song ideas was that our little device has such a nice recorder on it. Now we can just in the car and just throw down that little riff, uh, beatbox it to yourself, whatever, you know, get to the hotel that night, play the idea with your guitar. By that time, the lyrics probably come to you. I mean, it was harder. You know, you heard that country documentary that Ken Burns made. And there's a lot of stories about dudes looking for a pencil. It's so true. Well, and you see all the lyrics for some of the great songwriters like Bob Dylan, and they were written on the back of an envelope or, right. you know, whatever, a napkin in a, in a bar. And then you hope... Desperately, like, oh, I don't know. And you're like, I hope that I didn't drink too much and, and forget to stuff it in my pocket or something like that. 
because it was brilliant. <laughs> All of our pet masterpieces were forgotten in our inebriated uh, nocturnal <laughs> state. No, uh, there's also something to the fact that the good ones are you're probably going to remember. Now, the, the development of a nice little seed, the germination of a nice middle seed is why we try to document um, more. It's just been a pleasure talking to you, as always, and uh, great album. Uh, we're huge fans, obviously, and we'd love to have you come back. And uh, when everyone can be safely returning to the road and and uh, do a, a, another taping here for our concert series, and uh, we wish you the best of luck. It'd be our pleasure. That was great talking, um, and I really do appreciate the questions about, like, real key and all that stuff. That, that's a rare thing, so I appreciate your... Uh, your interest in all of that. We hope you enjoyed this conversation with Joe Firstman. Be sure to listen to other Diddy TV podcasts for more from the leaders and legends in the Americana and Roots music scene. And don't forget to visit DiddyTV.com for more exclusive on-demand content and to download the official Diddy TV app from your app store today. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.